Is anybody out there using nightlight? Nightlight. Good. You do. Thank you, Tessa. I don't much care for nightlights. I, I used to have to have them when I was young. I was a sleepwalker. Anybody a sleepwalker besides me? I mean, like, really badly. The, the worst part um, that I remember was when I was a kid, we'd go visit my grandfather and my grandmother who were in Virginia. We always had to stay on the upstairs of the house. And, I mean, I would go all over the place when I sleptwalked. And so they had to barricade the top of the stairs, put things in the way in case I got, you know, out and about. Now, now Denise can testify. I don't know if I've ever sleepwalked, but apparently I am a sleep talker, too. As in, yeah, we would have apparent conversations while I was dead asleep, and I didn't ever remember them in the morning, which is, I guess, a good thing, and um, she's still there, so I must not have said anything too horribly. What's that, huh? one of those things, nice to sleep, apparently walking and talking, and that's how I got my exercise years ago, the sleep walk, no, never mind. We, we do, I mean, nighttime is one of those things, anybody scared of the dark? Let's, okay, good. I'm usually not, but I get up real early, and, and sometimes I'll get up early and come over here, and i got to be honest, when you walk into the fellowship hall at like 6 in the morning and there's no sun up, that's a scary place. Without the, you know, the buffet tables lined up for us Baptist folks. It's just, it feels so empty and cold. I don't know. It's good. Well, I say all that, thinking about night and night lights, because we want to look at another one of the I am statements of Jesus this morning. It's found in John chapter 8. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, most of the verses we'll look at will be up on the screens as well. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you want to follow along. There's some tucked under the seats there. Uh, Maybe you have your mobile or tablet that you'd like to to use. Anyway, we're going to be in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus makes the statement we want to camp out on today. And he says this in that verse. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This is kind of a famous idea that that we associate with Jesus. And what I want today to do is look at a little bit of the context in which he said that and see if that might illuminate, no pun intended for us, what is maybe in his mind there. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, throughout Scripture, we've got this, uh, this contrast between light and darkness. Um, in the beginning, it tells us in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the earth was formless and void, and, and, and G, excuse me, God had to step into that formlessness and that void, and he said, let there be light. And so one of the earliest acts of creation, God made light and he separated the light from darkness, it tells us. And ever since then, we see this idea that that light represents good in many ways and darkness represents uh, uh, the enemy. In fact, Jesus, excuse me, in in Acts chapter 26, not Jesus, uh, but um, Paul there talks about in Acts 26, verses, I think, 16 and 17. Next slide, please. We'll see what he says. I am sending you to God, sending Jesus, or Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from what? Darkness to light. And then he, very specifically, from the power of Satan to God. So we have this dichotomy in Scripture, this this one against the other idea 
in Scripture that there's darkness, that that, that represents Satan, that that represents evil, that that represents the, the antithesis then of light or God or, or hope. And we see that throughout Scripture. So when Jesus would say in this chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, he's pulling all of that backstory to the front. But what I find quite fascinating is, as I mentioned a minute ago, the context in which he said it. Chapter 8, verse 12 comes immediately after. Here's some of the astute theological education I have. John 8, 12 comes immediately after John 8, 11. Did you know that? In fact, immediately after John 8, 1 through 11. And in John 8, 1 through 11, we have an account of something that maybe you are familiar with. It's the account of the woman caught in adultery, as it's often called. Fascinating encounter that happens there between Jesus and this woman and many, many other people that are there, a part of it. And I want to look at that and see how that might build toward Jesus making this declaration in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. In in John chapter 8, beginning in in verse 2, we see uh, at dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So where is he? Let's just remember this from the very beginning. Where is Jesus? He's in the temple courts. Now, what we don't know from this particular verse, but if we back up to chapter 7, is all of this is happening in the context of one of the Jewish feasts, particularly the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. And that's going to play an interesting role as well as we go forward in this. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's come there with his disciples, as many good and observant Jews would do, to observe this religious feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And because a lot of what happens around the feast in Jerusalem is centered at the temple at dawn, early in the morning, Jesus goes to the temple. He's in the courts, large outside. The the temple complex actually was massive, if you're not familiar with it. The temple itself The building, so to speak, was rather small, but the surrounding courts, the courts of the Gentiles and the courts of the women, before you get into the the inner courts where only the men could go, and then the the, the building with the Holy of Holies where only the high priest or the priest could go, it's a pretty massive complex that sits on one of the highest hills in the area, the highest point of Jerusalem. And so that is where Jesus is. He's in the courts of the temple when this happens. So picture that. Imagine As best we can, this happened on Sunday morning at church, because that's kind of the picture here. Could you imagine if what happens next were to happen today, or forget today, because today is not a particularly uh, high holy day for we Christians, but let's say it happened Easter Sunday, one of the big festivals or celebrations in the Christian church, because that's the equivalent of when it's happening here, when a lot of people are in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And it tells us that he's in the temple courts, the people are gathered around him, he's going to teach, as he often did. And then what happens? The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Well, that must be embarrassing. Could you imagine? I mean, how if you can at all, put yourselves in her shoes, not maybe specifically the adultery part, but the fact that she was dragged out of bed without a chance to get ready, without a chance to present herself to the temple, to Easter Sunday at church by these other people. A total 
just embarrassing situation, discounting the place where they found her. Of course, you know the number one question most people ask about this particular verse is, don't you? Where is the feller? If a woman is caught in adultery, it takes two to tango, I heard somewhere a long time ago. Where's number two? We don't know. But that's not the point for these religious leaders. And, and we say all that because what happens next in the, in the temple, at the church, by the people that are considered the leaders of that place, the ones that were the ones that day in and day out, not just on the high holy days, but every day were there, serving at the temple, serving at the altar, dealing with the sacrifices, dealing with all the stuff that happened. They are supposed to be kind of the stewards of it. And now here they come in, maybe using that authority in a way to totally put this person, this woman, on the spot. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So now, forget the first blush. She comes in, nobody knows what's happening, and that's embarrassing enough. But now in front of everybody, they just lay it out there. Wouldn't that be exciting if maybe on some day, let's say Easter Sunday, we just had a chance to tell each other all the bad things we've done. No, no, better yet, we have other people tell about us. Just, do you have anything you'd like to say about anybody here that they've, they've done evil or sinful things? Just come on up to the mic and tell us. Yes, John over there, Jill over there, Jack, or I'm trying not to, if your name is any of those, no, no, really, just looking for names. And I realize, you know, John is and Jill and Jack. And I guess I could just name everybody. That way we're all on it, nonetheless. But, but could you imagine that? Just a chance for somebody to level an accusation against you in front of that group and Jesus there. An incredible moment that would happen before Jesus in this very public place. Well, they go on and tell us in in verse 5, we get a little more information. The teachers of the law say, in the law of Moses, in the law, excuse me, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So these teachers of the law who've studied the law, who memorized the law, who had it down pat, stand in the place that was the site that represented God's presence in Israel, the place where people went to do the things that the law required, and they say in front of all these people there, fulfilling their religious duty on this festival week, hey, the law says... Stoner. Now, just to be clear, we're not in Colorado. It's not that kind. It's meaning to pick up rocks and to throw them at her till she's dead. That's what the law required. Incidentally, you know what the law also said that was the punishment for? Children that didn't listen to mama and daddy. Amen, right? No, I'm just kidding. Not really. It did say that, but we don't practice it. But the law was pretty harsh about those things, right? I mean, this was the punishment in the Old Testament law. Lots of things like this required that harsh of a response. And so they've caught this woman. They know the law. They put it out there for Jesus. And it tells us very specifically, they asked this question, not because of their 
zeal for the law, not because of their willingness to honor the holiness of God, but rather to try to trap Jesus. And it was a pretty effective trap. I mean, he has, you know, you would imagine two choices. You can say, I I think, no, you should not stone her. And to say that in the temple, in front of the religious leaders and all the people, is akin to saying the law doesn't matter. We don't have to listen to the law. Do whatever you want. It's not authoritative anymore. Jesus couldn't say that because we know elsewhere that's not how he felt. He believed the law. He was the fulfillment of the law. I've not come to abolish the law, he said, but to fulfill it, to complete it, to perfect it. The other option would be to say, well, go ahead and stone her then. But what would that do? This, this rabbi, this teacher who had attracted such a large crowd, who were attracted probably because of his, the way he treated people, even sinners, as if there's a special category of people that's sinners. Guess who are sinners? John and Jill. No, I'm just kidding. We won't go back there. Uh, me. See, I left you out, Jack, so that's something, right? <laughs> Didn't get that far, no. Me and you and everybody. We're all sinners. But but that was the, the sort of thing that, that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Oh, my. Heaven forbid. And, and if he were to say, go ahead and stone her, what does that do for his his popularity, his burgeoning popularity, this, this one who people flock to hear? Suddenly, he's no different than the, the hardliners and, and what separates him. And, and maybe that's their hope, that either he'll somehow offend those who are following him by discounting the law of Moses, or somehow he would offend those who are following him by showing he's just as harsh and cruel as anybody. That's a tough thing. That's a tough place to be found. But that's what he was caught in. Um, and, and, and really, you know, just as you think about it, the law is, is tough. At times, if it is that hard, if it is that that harsh, what do we do with that? Not, of course, well, we, we know ultimately, and what the New Testament helps us understand about the law, is the law was never given with the intent that it would somehow save us, that, that if we would just keep all of these rules, somehow we'd make it. Because we know we've all sinned, we just covered that and fall short of the glory of God know that. The law wasn't given for that point. In fact, as Paul talks about, we've been studying Romans on Wednesday night, and one of the things that that Paul says is, I wasn't aware I was sinning until the law came along and told me I was sinning. I didn't know I was coveting until the law said, do not covet. I'm like, wait a minute, I do that. So so the law has a very important place. It, It reveals to us our guilt. It's important that we know that we're guilty of breaking God's law. That's a rule of it. By the way, i got to share this with you. I think it was Friday. Janet, was it Friday? Yeah. This was left for me. Somebody came by, and, and the title, it's, it's a photocopy of a book. Let me just say before I read anything, hear this if you hear nothing else. Don't go buy this book. This is not a recommendation of this book. Do we understand? Okay. The book is titled God's Message to the World. The subtitle is You've Got Me All Wrong. God wants you to know, according to this book, you've got him all wrong. How do you have him all wrong? Let me just read a little bit. 
I don't know where to start. There's so much I could see. God has been telling us from the very beginning, and it is becoming more clear to us every day, that humanity's ancient cultural story about God seeing us as imperfect and therefore not allowing us back into heaven unless and until we have been purified is plainly and simply inaccurate. Really? It is okay now to remove this ancient teaching from our current story and stop telling ourselves this and stop telling our children. We are not born in sin, nor do we inherit sinful tendencies through the lineage of souls going back to the purported first misbehavior. It's a figment of our religious imagination. God did not throw anyone out of paradise, and one look at the world around you will show you that human beings are still living in paradise. I wonder what those people in Nepal would say about paradise today. Would they say, oh, look at paradise, 1,400? Dead? So far. And this is just the beginning. Just the top of a long list of treasures that this paradise called earth will always hold if you will but hold them as treasures. It, It is amazing. And then this, the beauty of this world is enhanced beyond measure by the beauty of you. Nothing is imperfect about you. Nothing you have ever thought, nothing you have ever said, nothing you have ever done. It is all perfect. The devil wrote this. Neil Donald Walsh wrote this. That's just the first page of a few. I read this and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Where does he live? Oh, I know, La La Land. Um, but this, isn't that a, remarkable? This is incredible to me. He, he goes on and, and talks about that, you know, we don't need a Savior, that that, that is a fiction, the idea that, that somehow there's something wrong with us and we need to, to, to just, or that's just wrong, that we're perfect. I mean, did you hear that again? Nothing you've ever thought. Nothing you've ever said and nothing you've ever done is wrong. Really? Then my mom owes me a big apology. And when my granny told me to cut my switch, she was not enlightened. Have you ever met a two-year-old? They never do anything wrong. I mean, what's the kind of the stereotypical story? You tell them, don't do it, and what's the first thing they do? That. But nothing they've ever thought, nothing they've ever said, nothing they've ever done is wrong. Isn't that remarkable? This is, this is not, by the way, some obscure like thinking that's way out there. This is sort of the cultural norm. This is sort of what our world would say. We are inherently good. And let me remind you what the Bible says about you. The Bible says... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not just wicked, desperately wicked. Like a man drowning and who would drown the very life saver who would come to rescue him. That kind of desperation is present in our heart. I know myself better than to say nothing I've ever said, nothing I've ever thought, nothing I've ever done is wrong. I had some thoughts this morning that you wouldn't want to know. 
because we're just broken. And, and is the world an amazing place? Oh, yeah. Incredible. Beautiful. Amazingly complex. But the Bible says even creation is groaning for its redemption. The fall has so marred not just humanity, but all of the creation that it's seeking out for something to fix what's gone wrong. And the one who came to fix what's wrong finds himself in this story in the temple courts before a woman who's caught in the act of adultery and before people who surround him who want him to somehow make a way for them to look better, to discredit himself. And what does he do? The strangest thing. You know, I know Jesus is God in the flesh. The the Word made flesh. The second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, we know that. But sometimes the things he comes up with are amazing. How did... How did he think to do this? I mean, because he's God. I know that's the that's a cop-out, right? Oh, well, there we go. But what does he do? It tells us. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, that doesn't make any sense. That is the ultimate non sequitur. Here you go. Here's the conversation. And he goes a hard left, which is actually your right. So a hard left. Is that better? Just absolutely just... Bends down and writes. Now, a lot of people ask, what do you think he wrote? Here's the answer. Don't know. Don't know what he wrote. Some people look at the the Greek word for writing, and it's the the word katagraphene. Graphene is the the Greek word for writing, and kata is is the, the prefix that means against. So some people look at that word and say he was writing against, and he could have been We don't know. This is just one guess. It's not clear in the text. It's just taking that one word and saying maybe that's the implication. He was maybe writing down in the sand, on the ground, the very things that the people who were accusing this woman had also been guilty of. Because here's the thing. He knew, as the Savior, everyone there was a sinner. The woman was guilty. The people who caught her in the act of adultery were guilty. The ones surrounding him in the crowd, watching this whole spectacle unfold, also guilty. And there was plenty that he could choose from to write down if he wanted to point out faults. And maybe that's what he did. I don't know. But here's the the thing that, that happened. It kind of turned the tide of the moment. Because it tells us in the next verse, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at him. And then he bent down again and started writing in the dirt. Okay, here's the deal. I'm not going to answer your question yes or no. I'm going to imply by what my answer is that the law is good and that the law could be enforced. But I'm just going to put a condition on the enforcement of that law. I'm going to remind you it's always easier to see the sin in someone else than it is to see it in yourself. Have you noticed that? Oh, you want me to tell you about what, I don't know, let's just pick somebody. Denise did wrong? I could do that. You want to know what I did wrong? Ask her. She noticed. We have a long list 
We keep those lists because we're good about seeing the wrong other people do. And it's hard to look in the mirror and realize, wait a minute, isn't there, isn't there that verse, maybe you've heard it, um, before you take the, the splinter out, take the log out of your own eye? That's, that's the reality. And, and in a manner of speaking, Jesus is making that challenge. Hey, you who are without sin, be the first to throw the stone. You have my permission, all the sinful here, to toss away. See, so we have to come to that point. The danger of, of a book like this and thinking like that is it, it denies the fact that we are sinners, that we are all guilty before God. And if you are not a sinner, then you don't need a Savior. And if you don't need a Savior, you don't need Jesus. And if you don't need Jesus, then what right does he have to speak for God? And if you don't need a Savior, you don't need Jesus, and you don't need God, do what you want. Because after all, nothing you've ever thought or said or done is wrong. I'm so happy nobody said amen. Just, let's just write God out of the equation. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus admits. Jesus enforces the idea. You've all done something wrong. You just don't have the moment now to be called on it in front of everybody in the church today. And the scripture tells us, that they dropped their stones and walked away. One little detail. From the oldest to the youngest. From the oldest to the youngest, they just decided, you know what? I can't do this. I don't meet that criteria. And so, now Jesus turns to the woman. And he says in verse 10, Jesus straightened up, stood back up, and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then he says this, Then neither do I condemn you. Then neither do I condemn you. You know, she knew she was guilty. Maybe... Like we all do, she had rationalized a lot of things the day before or the week before or the month before or the year before when this whole process started that led her to that moment that she was caught in the act of adultery. Maybe like most of us, we kind of talk ourselves into, we have a really good reason for what we're doing. And, and if you knew the reason, then, then maybe it wouldn't seem so bad. And over time, talking ourselves into that, we convince ourselves it's really not that bad. But when something like this happens, when you're dragged out, from that moment and put in front of everybody, you don't have anywhere to hide. You can't deny anymore that what you did wasn't really that bad. You're confronted with the reality of your guilt and the punishment that should rightfully come upon you because of your guilt. You feel it, and you feel it deeply. And you think there's nowhere you can run, and there's nowhere you can hide until Jesus stands up and looks you in the eye and would say something like that to you. Then neither do I. Maybe today you needed to hear that. You don't need to hear there's nothing wrong with you. You need to come face to face with the reality that at heart you are a sinner, but you also need to hear that this God who came and walked the earth in the person of Jesus will look you in the eye and say, then I'm not going to condemn you either. Therefore, now there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we admit our guilt before him and place our faith in him, there is no condemnation. There isn't that reality that that Jesus or God or whoever is looking down, waiting to punish us for all the bad we've done. No, Jesus himself took the punishment on the cross so that we didn't have to bear it. We could be free from that condemnation. What an incredible reality. Let me tell you a story I heard. You know Craig Groeschel? Anybody know who he is? I bet most of you, how many of you have a cell phone with the Bible app on it? Maybe you know who Craig Groeschel is. His church, Life Church TV, created the Version Bible app. He's the pastor of that mega church out in Oklahoma City. So a pretty good guy, right? You would think a lot going for him. Well, he tells a story about one time where he was caught violating the traffic laws. I'm just going to guess speeding because everybody speeds, right? Everybody does something wrong in traffic from time to time. So we'll just say speed. Anyway, he gets going to traffic court. And he went in there, and he says he comes into traffic court. He realized he knew half the people in the room. They were all part of his church. And if he knew them, that meant they knew who he was. And so he said, I sat in the back row and pulled my hat down low and just tried to hide. I'm like, maybe nobody will recognize me. This won't be bad. And he sat there, and he watched person after person called up before the judge. The judge was saying, you... You are charged with speeding. How do you plead? And, they, and to a person, they all said, I'm not guilty. Not guilty. Not, I'm innocent, judge. I was clocked wrong, or, or the, the machine wasn't calibrated right. All these things came up. And he's like, man, this is great. And every time, though they said they were innocent, the judge says, oh, you know what? You're guilty. You're caught. Pay the fine, blah, blah, blah. He's like, all right, this whole, this isn't working. i got to try something different. So he's at his turn. Finally, they call him. Craig Rochelle, and off. He gets from the back row, and now he can't hide anymore. Everybody that knows him or heard his name, and he walks up before the judge. And the judge says, uh, Mr. Groeschel, you were caught speeding or whatever. How do you plead? He said, I'm guilty, sir. He said, what? He said, he said I'm guilty. I did it. He said, what did you say? He said, I was an idiot. I'm guilty. I did it. And the judge says, say that a little louder. I don't think everybody heard you. And now he's like, oh, great. What have I done? Okay. He said, I'm guilty. He said, louder. I'm guilty. Say it again. Your Honor, I'm guilty. I did it. I mean, I can't believe I did it. I did it. I did it. I did it. And the, the judge said, man, I can't believe this. This is horrible. He said, I've got all these innocent people in here. I can't be bothered with you guilty people. In fact, I'm worried if you stay in here, you're going to infect all these innocent people. So your fine is forgiven. Go. Excellent. I don't know if that'll work everywhere, but apparently it worked for him. And you know, it's the same thing with God. The, the eternal judge of heaven and earth, if we want to stand before him and, and quote, God, I've never said anything wrong. I've never done anything wrong. I've never even thought anything wrong. I'm innocent, God. You know what he's going to say? You're guilty. And here's the fine. You have to pay it. It's, not, it's, it's a pretty steep fine. But it's when we stand before God and look him in the eye and say, God, I'm, I am guilty. I did it. I have sinned. I deserve whatever you want to give. Whatever the law says should come upon me, God, I deserve to be separated from you forever. It's only then that in that facing honestly and confessing our sin that we can find the forgiveness and the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we find that, there's now no condemnation any longer for us because we're in 
Christ Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus said, go and sin no more. And then, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Let me show you a picture. I told you there were two contexts. One was the the immediate context, the, the first 11 verses, the story we've just spent some time looking at. The second context I mentioned before is that this happens in the temple at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the things that happens during the Feast of Tabernacles, and I think the picture will come up here if it works oh well, is at night there are four huge menorahs that are at the corners of the court of the, the temple. And in those menorahs there are about 70, 75 feet tall. So they're above the walls of the temple. And each of those menorahs has several bowls. It's about 10 gallons of oil that each of those holds. And every night, those menorahs, one at each corner of the temple, is lit. And the light at night, because the temple sits on the highest point of Jerusalem, floods out over the city. And you can look up and see the temple there on the hill with its lights, those four menorahs lighting up the sky. It's meant to remind the people at this time of festival that the Shekinah glory of God filled the temple at its dedication just as it filled the tabernacle. It's to remind them as that Feast of Tabernacles reminds them that they once wandered in the wilderness, that the, the light of God went before them and led them through the wilderness to the place it would be. And ultimately it's to remind them that as God has entrusted Israel with his revelation, with his law, that they are a light to the nations. All of that summed up in, in the simple symbol of these lights that are lit every night around the temple. And into that context, in maybe the very court where he's surrounded by those, those large lamps, Jesus would say, no longer is this symbolic of the light. No, I am the light of the world. I'm the one that is the glory of God, much as it filled the temple. He has filled me. I am his Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I am also the, the, the light of the wilderness. I am the one who will guide your life. If you will look to me, you will never be in darkness again. I am the light that will guide you through all of life. And I am the light, just like Israel once shown to all the people to point to what God was up to. I am now the one through whom God displays his plan and his purposes, if you will but look to me. And I can't imagine, but when this happened, after, could you imagine the commotion and, or, or maybe the silence that went over the crowd after the commotion died down and all those laid their stones down and walked a way that Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. I wonder how many people maybe looked up at those very candle stands towering over them and realized that here in their presence was the one who so perfectly represented God. The God that for all of their history they had learned and for all of their history God had used and dwelt and revealed himself to them, now was showing them he was up to something more, up to something else. Just Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You can see in me the glory of God. I will be the one that guides you through whatever wilderness you may find yourself in. And you can see in me the revelation of God because I am that one. See, if, if we don't come to terms as, as this woman caught in adultery did, 
as all of those who eventually had to admit by laying down their stones and walking away. We don't come to the point of recognizing we need a Savior because we are sinners. And we're going to miss the greatest thing ever. This is the third week we've looked at some things Jesus has said. Today we looked at Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Why does he have to be the light of the world? Because you're in darkness without him. That's not a good place to be. Last week we talked about Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. Why did he say that? If you weren't here last week, you don't maybe know, but what we learned and what we talked about is we're all like sheep who've gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way. We're stubborn and foolish. We need a shepherd. And the first week we said, that Jesus would say after Lazarus, or right before Lazarus raised from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Why do we need to know Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's hugely important. I grew up, we have heroes in, in, in church world, um, and they're usually evangelists. Have you noticed this? The evangelists who travel around, that's, that's kind of a thing that doesn't happen as much anymore, but every year at my church we had a revival week. And some evangelists from somewhere else in the state, and if we had a little extra money, we'd get them all the way from, like, Georgia or Carolina or something. They were splurging that year, would come in. And, and it was fascinating. I, I can't tell you how many of them. They had the craziest life stories. You ever notice that? The evangelists, they all used to be drug dealers, apparently. I guess that's just required if you're going to be an evangelist. I was a drug dealer. I was in prison. I was a murderer. They all had these horrible stories. And, and one of the, the things about... Their, their stories is when Jesus came into their life, it was turned around completely and amazing. And, and that's a very compelling story, that they were this, and now because of their faith in Christ, they've been transformed, they've been forgiven, and they have all of this. Here's what I want you to hear. If you're a believer, you have a better story than that. You know what your story is? I'll tell you my story. I told you before. I was saved when I was seven years old, baptized at seven years old. Now, seven years old is young, and we've still gotten some trouble, but realistically, I was a pretty good kid. I hadn't done a lot wrong. You know, I hadn't robbed any liquor stores at seven. I, I, was, pretty, I was pretty tame by seven-year-old standards, right? I recognized, because I grew up in church uh, and learned about Jesus, I needed a Savior. I placed my faith in Him, prayed with my dad and my pastor and my uncle, and I was baptized, and I was transformed. And you, you know, grow up, I think, that's not much of a testimony. That's why I throw in the rob the liquor store part, because that kind of gets you a little, oh, now you're paying attention. But you're like, tell me your testimony. Well, I was saved at seven. I was a bad little boy. You're a bad little boy, right. You're just one of those people. And we, and we, we look at it that way. And, and here's what I want you to say, and Louis Giglio talks about this, and I love when he said this because it made so much sense. Like, listen, if you are a child of God, you have a testimony, and this is your testimony. It's miraculous. You were dead, and now you are alive, period. That's your testimony. You don't have to have a horrible backstory. I don't care if you were robbing liquor stores or you were telling little white lies to your grandmother. Either way, you were dead in your trespasses and sins until Jesus came in and gave you life. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. We needed that. We were dead. We need light because we're in the dark. Until we come to terms with that, we'll never see our need for Jesus, our need for that Savior. 
So what's your testimony? Where, where do you find yourself on that continuum? Are you in the dark? Are you dead in trespasses and sin? Are you a sheep who's lost your way? I have good news. Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus is the good shepherd. And no matter what you've been caught in, maybe not as scandalous as what happens in the first few verses of John chapter 8, but somewhere you've been caught in it. When you place your faith in Jesus, He will stand and look you in the eye and say the same thing He told her. Then neither do I condemn you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray today that if there is someone here that needs to know that you are not a God who wants to condemn, but a God who wants to forgive and to save, that today they've heard that message from your word and even from the lips of Jesus as he interacted with this woman caught in adultery and the crowd and the religious leaders that ultimately he could get the message through that needed to come through. That though we are in darkness, though we are dead, He is life and light. And Lord, I pray today, if there's someone in this this room, there's someone in this building, who would admit that very truth. They are dead. They are in the dark. They need a Savior that even now they'd call out to you in prayer. And Lord, you promised to hear and to answer. And they would hear the words, even that we read today, as they turn from their sin and turn to you, then you don't condemn them, but you offer forgiveness and eternal life. Because you bore the penalty, you bore the condemnation yourself on the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us that we did not deserve. Help us to quit fooling ourselves somehow to think we're better than we are, to not see the reality of our sin in the mirror, but to to be honest enough to repent and confess and find in you hope and life and forgiveness. Thank you that you are here today, Father. Thank you that you love us. And you demonstrated that love in that while we were yet sinners, you died. Say all of these things in Jesus' name.